MacArthur, the ever-growing showman that he is, was running a campaign called Home by Christmas, in which he was walking all around the northern parts of Korea, congratulating men, shaking hands, and getting pictures as men settled down to have kind of warm meals, although winter is setting in and temperatures are dropping fast. They're still getting good food and think the war is going to be over, with letters being written home like crazy, and some following of the new presidential election that's going on right now in November of 1950. But little did they know that a frozen hell is coming upon the men who just a few months earlier landed in Incheon and drove up the Korean Peninsula, and there's going to be a even worse location to be than anywhere else on this planet right now, and that is Chosen Reservoir. Hello, and welcome back to the Cleocast. I'm RC. And I'm Matt. Thank you for joining us back for part four of the Korean War and episode 15 of the Cleocast. Uh, we put out a little episode last week that wasn't Korean War, but now we're going to resume right where we left off. So where we left off last, uh, PLA troops from China are crossing the Yalu River and are about to engage in what is America's longest retreat, even though they will not say that. And if you talk to anyone who is associated with any military history of the United States military, i.e. any West Point professors or people in the DOD or anything like that, they will say retreat's not in the lexicon of the United States military, but they did retreat. But... Let's go ahead and set the scene. It is the early winter of 1950, and it's one of the coldest winters on record, with temperatures getting about 25 degrees below zero Fahrenheit. Uh, You can go ahead and do the translations and conversions yourself to Celsius, or, you know, if you want to do Kelvin, go ahead, and I don't really care. But the United States military and UN forces, even though the bulk of them are either American or Republic of Korea forces, are looking up that this is going to be the end of the war and maybe this Chinese intervention isn't really that big of a deal until multiple Chinese army groups, which average about uh, 100,000 to 200,000 men each, start really getting involved in making forward progress drastically against UN forces. Now, this is an issue mainly because you have a bunch of guys who are cold, and with the temperatures being as low as it is, a lot of equipment, like trucks, struggle to work in these temperatures because, you know, diesel engines have to be warm enough in order to operate. So, the movement that was afforded to a lot of U.S. forces during the bulk of the war, which is extreme mechanization and uh, mechanized infantry, is basically gone and honestly it was a lackluster response from the invasion force in general to understand that hey maybe the Chinese are an actual threat so one thing comes to another and there are three American divisions being encircled around a reservoir that was mispronounced by the Japanese from the original Korean name written down on a map, and then the Japanese name, which is a mispronunciation of the Korean name, was mispronounced by the Americans, in which it was referred to as Chosen, Chosen Reservoir. And that's what we'll be referring to it as for the entire episode, but understand that that's not the correct name in the official real 
language of the people who live there. But the Chosen Reservoir was the temporary home of the U.S. 10th Corps. Now, the 10th Corps consisted of uh, some forces from the Republic of Korea Army, but what is important for the story is the composition of the U.S. forces there, which consisted of the 3rd Infantry Division, the 7th Infantry Division, and the 1st Marine Division. Now, you might know some of these divisions as maybe the legendary division that fought in Guadalcanal, or the three divisions that landed at Inchon just a few months earlier. Well, they've been making their home around the Chosen Reservoir, and with PLA forces from the People's Republic of China coming in and almost completing an encirclement while in below 20-degree weather, 10th Corps was in for a fight. And this is a situation that most of their commanding officers were not ready for. Whether it is Douglas MacArthur as the overall commander or uh, Edward Ned Almond, who was the commander of the 10th Corps, or the Marine Corps leader, Oliver P. Smith. Now, these are all important names they'll play later, but we felt that this episode, we should look more at uh, the individual people themselves. So we will be taking a more in-depth look into the idea of uh, you know, the individual people and not doing great man history as much as we tend to do. So this will focus a bit more on the story of the individual men at the Chosen Reservoir, including a 1st Marine Division company called Fox Company, but we'll get into that later. Now, this might be hard for a lot of us, but you got to kind of remember what the general American populace was thinking at the time. So this war that broke out months and months and months ago with the North Koreans storming over the border and then, you know, the brave holdout at the Pusan perimeter and then the landing at Incheon, all of that happened over the course of maybe a couple months. But then up until October, it's just been UN forces pushing the North Koreans back. You know, there's been fighting, but it's pretty much just been a rolling retreat for the North Koreans up to the Yalu River. So a lot of Americans had kind of tuned things out. I mean, think to yourself, when was the last time you thought about Iraq or Afghanistan or any other conflict that's been going on for a long time? And granted, those have been going on for a lot longer than this, but at a certain point, you start to tune it out. This kind of war fatigue was a very real thing, especially in 1950, where only five years before the largest war in human history had ended. Now, between World War II and Korea, which do you think is going to be heavier on the scale? Korea is like, the entire war is effectively like a small fries compared to World War II. I mean, any theater of the war. So you can imagine a lot of these people who, many of whom are veterans or had kids in it, you know, spent the last however many years of World War II reading the news every day and, oh, you know, Battle of the Bulge, all this big news. I'm not so sure Korea checks out as much, especially because there's not that much fighting going on up until the Chinese intervention happens. So when we're talking about a lot of this kind of American GI holdout, all this stuff, we're focusing on like the grand picture that we have 
living in the 21st century and being so far reserved from it for, but for a lot of people, not only did they not have as many details of the events that we have the luxury of having today, but also a lot of people just don't care. I mean, you're listening to a history podcast, so obviously you care about history enough to listen to us talk about it, but most people don't care and aren't going to pay attention to the news as much. So a lot of these struggles and all that stuff is just getting lost on the average American. And that kind of plays into elections and politicking and all of this stuff that impacts this war on a great scale is just the people actually voting in our democracy, a lot of them care more about tax policy or immigration or things that maybe more directly affect them than a couple hundred thousand guys that they don't know fighting off in a continent that they can't point out on a map. And although, even though news media seems to wax and wane when it comes to the reporting of this war in Korea, uh, with, you know, the average GI in Korea being Times Person of the Year, really, like, also think about yourself, everyone in the past is very similar, because they are humans, to us. Sure, they have different cultures, they might come from a different time and have different thoughts, but human nature is generally the same. And if you understand anything about Times Magazine and you've seen the person of the year, do you really care? And if you were alive in 2006, you are Times person of the year. So the general understanding and the immediate fade that was happening from the American public to the war in Korea was um, drastic and falling off drastically. And I actually have an antidote uh, where I was talking to my grandmother at the time. She was born in uh, the 20s, and she had you know, grown up and was a teenager during World War II and was married and had a child around the time of uh, the Korean War going on. And I remember talking to her when she was still alive, and she said, it was so nice to have a bit of peace between World War II and then whatever happened in Vietnam, completely forgetting that the Korean War even happened, and she was a sharp for her age, but it wasn't even in her consciousness and understanding. She had to be reminded that the Korean War even happened. And this is where it's known as the Forgotten War, and this was starting very early on. Uh, and this is why focusing especially on what we're going to get into of the absolute endurance that it takes to survive these battles that are coming, especially the Chosen Reservoir, it really isn't registering in the minds of most people. And these people, especially the soldiers who suffered and fought during this, have altogether been basically forgotten. And that's a shame. And really the legacy of all of these guys, including uh, a lot of the stuff we'll focus on during this podcast, should be remembered and honestly just is stories that deserve movies but that's just my opinion so we highlighted earlier the home by christmas campaign and this wasn't just the pr coup this was also an actual policy that was put in place there was a drawdown starting that the military assumed the war was going to be over soon so on october 25th the pentagon stopped shipments of troops over they're like well we're not going to need these guys we're going to have to bring them back anyways so they stopped 
transporting people over, except for about 17,000 non-commissioned officers that they figured they could use for you know, leadership roles, managing, whatnot. But altogether, everyone was just ready to go home. The war was going to be over. You know, they're nearing the northern border of North Korea. Soon the entire peninsula is going to be in the hands of the Americans and UN coalition forces. They're going to be able to hand it back over to Sigmund Rhee and, you know, be home by Christmas. Of course, that all changed when the Chinese got involved. They didn't want uh, what they saw as American puppet state to be so close to their border. It's like what we said last episode with a communist country being on the Mexican border with us. Americans wouldn't take that too nicely, neither did the Chinese. So when they moved across the border on October 25th, now this wasn't necessarily the giant mast movement yet. This was just small garrisons moving across the Yalu, setting up checkpoints and kind of staging the area for the main invasion or liberation, depending on which point of view you're looking at. This was found out by South Korean troops who ran into stiff enemy resistance around 20-ish miles from the Yalu River. This was unexpected as the North Koreans had mostly just been running for the border. So the Republic of Korean troops were very concerned. They're like, wait a second, are they going to fight us? But that was not the case as they quickly discovered it was actually Chinese forces who were coming. This was sent up all the way to Allied High Command, who were very concerned by this. I mean, they had already begun drawing down. The same day, they had canceled a shipment of troops over the ocean to Korea. They began to draw plans to kind of delay this. Of course, the Yalu River is a river. You have to be able to cross it. So they began coming up with plans to bomb the bridges. Because they figured, well, if there's no bridges, they can't cross, right? So that'll stop them. They're not going to bother coming over if they have to cross it. Because it's not exactly a stream. I mean, the Yala River is a river. It's big. So currently, this all is moving very slowly. You know, the 25th rolls on. Chinese troops are slowly crossing the border and amassing. And staging areas as, as South Korean and, and UN coalition forces are slowly making their way north. On October 25th, the Republic of Korean and UN coalition troops were only about 60 miles from the Yalu River. That was the same day they actually made the Yalu River their goal. So they're slowly advancing and slowly running into more and more patrols who are giving them little tiny tidbits of information. You know, okay, this isn't just volunteers. This is an actual army. Okay, they're going to try and stop us. Okay, well, what are we going to do? And this isn't necessarily just, you know, patrols running into one another. On the night of November 5th, a patrol of Chinese troops followed a telephone wire back to a base where American troops were found sleeping in their cots and killed. It's starting to heat up. I mean, they're not afraid of fighting the coalition at all. But as far as they're concerned, they're defending their homeland. And the UN coalition forces did not necessarily fear the Chinese that much, probably largely due to racism. I mean, they they pretty much viewed them as pushovers. You know, we're just going to roll through them like we're rolling through the North Koreans. I have a quote from none other than one Douglas MacArthur. 
who described the Chinese force as nothing more than just an Asiatic mob who was facing them. And some of his subcommanders tried to warn him that these forces were a lot more sophisticated than they were being led to believe. But obviously, American troops had underlying issues with racism and generally they've been having a pretty easy time at everything so they they just weren't really that concerned now around this time in early november u.n intelligence had finally gotten about a full picture of what they were facing it was around a hundred thousand chinese troops split into three army divisions it was about five full field armies facing off with the 8th Army and the 2nd Republic of Korean Corps in the central area of North Korea. They kept about six divisions in reserve. So in the first phase of operations, the People's Liberation Army from China uh, was putting in three divisions with six in reserve. So they're only putting in half of what they had in reserves into combat. So the back layer for replacement that the Chinese army had going into this was drastic. And really, with how minimal amount of replacements that were backlogged for UN forces, especially American forces, as outlined earlier, for only 17,000 NCOs coming in, really, if combat was sustained and long, you know, there's nothing that really UN forces could do because the Chinese have replacements and they can easily cycle in and out their units so when they start approaching the chosen reservoir which has 10th corps in it the 9th army group and the 13th army group which are only two of the three originally committed into that battle as more and more armies keep flooding in combat was getting hot and it was getting hot quickly and both Chinese forces and American forces were learning what they were up against. The Americans were learning that the Chinese were no military to scoff at. And from reporting from Chinese forces, they produced a pamphlet from their combat against American forces with the Chinese pamphlet saying, it obviously translated, quote, abandon all their heavy weapons, leaving them all over the place. Play possum. Their infantrymen are weak, afraid to die, and haven't had the courage to attack or defend. They depend on their planes, their tanks, artillery. At the same time, they are afraid of our firepower. They cringe when... Often advance, they hear firing, they're afraid to advance further. They specialize in day fighting, they're not familiar with night fighting or hand-to-hand combat. If defeated, they have no orderly formation. Without use of their mortars, they become completely lost, they become dazed and completely demoralized. At Usan, they were surrounded for several days and yet they did nothing. They are afraid when the rear gets cut off, when transportation comes to a standstill, and the infantry loses the will to fight. So, if you're curious on the understanding and the type of uh, combat that's going on, or the condition of U.S. forces, especially during the waning days of 1950, that's a pretty solid understanding, even though, you know, it is biased, but, you know, we've also been biased in favor of the United States during this podcast, so we'll go ahead and give this as a pretty solid understanding of what U.S. forces were being like, and when they get cut off, especially in a place like the Chuson Reservoir, you know, there, there is demoralization. But the one thing that seems to really stand out at the Chuson Reservoir 
is uh, the psychotic cult-like understanding of the 1st Marine Division. Now, as we briefly mentioned a few minutes ago, the Yalu River bombings, the plans were to destroy all the bridges along the Yalu River. But we've been talking about Chinese forces already across. Well, what happened? Well, the plans were being drawn up on November 3rd through the 6th, but they were being kind of politicked, right? The Yalu River is on the border with China. The American forces and MacArthur and Truman were not entirely sure whether these were Chinese volunteers or the Chinese army proper. So if they weren't the Chinese armor proper, they didn't want to necessarily drag them into the war. So they had plans to bomb basically every single major bridgehead, road, means of transportation, and that includes the town of Shinju, which is where Kim Il-sung and his government fled and where they were stationed. The plan was to fly B-29 Superfortress bombers over just dropping tens of thousands of pounds of munitions on every single thing and to completely level the city. But only a couple hours before the planes were meant to take off, they ordered them to be grounded. They were still worried about all the political connotations of dropping thousands of pounds of ordnance so close to the border. So they just kept wagging their toes and sitting around while the Chinese were preparing in North Korea proper. So on November 9th, the planes finally took off and bombed Chinese supply depots and North Korean supply depots to great effect, but when they went to the bridges, they were mostly ineffectual, and also, most everything was already across the river. It was far too late by that point. Because the other problem that the Joint Chiefs of Staff, MacArthur, Truman, all the big generals in Washington didn't really consider was the Chinese didn't really transport most of their war materials by train or truck like the Americans did. They mostly carried them by hand carts or other footborne means of transportation, which means even though you blow up the train tracks, all you need is a small pontoon bridge or, you know, lay some logs down, take a day, replace the bridge. It, it wasn't as effective as they may have thought it was, say, fighting the Germans or anything that they would have been fighting years prior. They hadn't quite gotten out of that big war mindset. And who can really blame them? Because they've been pretty effective so far, but it's just difficult to adapt sometimes. And that difficulty adapt also applies to the Air Force itself, who are using B-29 Superfortress bombers to bomb targets. Now, the B-29 Superfortress was designed for World War II, a war in which, by the end, when the B-29s were being rolled out, the Allies had complete an unmatched air superiority over the entirety of Europe and mostly the Pacific. Now, that was not the case at this current moment on November 9th when this was uh, going on because the B-29 is a propeller plane. The, well, the Chinese just got involved, and they have MiG-15 jet fighters, and the U.S. Air Force hasn't cleared the skies yet. So the B-29s very quickly realized that they were in danger if they didn't fly as high as they could. So now you got this bomber plane flying 20,000 feet trying to bomb a bridge. You tell me how well that's going to go, because it did not go very well. But really, these air campaigns didn't really matter to the guys on the ground, especially the men of 10th Corps, because they were basically completely encircled around the Chosen Reservoir. 
And when they asked for air support, they either got uh, Corsairs flying and dropping napalm, which is semi-effective, especially with uh, two PLA armies surrounding them. But really, they can't do any large-scale bombing, and they need uh, you know artillery support or anything like that. And the one thing that the Americans have gotten really good at is doing airlifts and dropping supplies, especially pretty strong supplies. So the people, especially in 10th Corps, requested them to drop artillery. And this is a fun anecdote that goes on. is they, The code word for that was Tootsie Roll. But the Air Force dropped Tootsie Rolls, actual Tootsie Rolls. Now, this was like, uh, well, we needed artillery pieces. Where's our where's our artillery piece? We have just a bunch of sugary chocolate candy. But uh, with the freezing weather and the battle intensifying, the Tootsie Rolls turned out to be extremely good at repairing all different things, acting as a kind of glue that you could chew up and then it would be free, frozen over with it being as cold as it is, with being, you know, 20 degrees below zero. And also... Uh, was a great way to sustain yourself when food was running out and you were running out of supplies and ammunition from being completely encircled. You know, you can sustain yourself off of the sugary sweets. But that was probably the only bit of solace that you had while you are in the Chuson Reservoir because there was the chosen few in the chosen reservoir and, you know, the people, especially at the 1st Marine Division, were running out of supplies drastically and you're forced to eating Tootsie Rolls or in order to even get, you know, if you're wounded, if, you know, if you didn't freeze to death or have frostbite bitten limbs or, you know, have uh, basically lose the will to live and lose all energy to actually continue fighting or moving in general and freezing in your foxhole. If you did actually get wounded or shot, uh, the chances of your blood plasma or blood bags that the medic would come to save you being frozen was quite high, and the chances that the syringe to put that in you wouldn't even work because it was so cold that you need to warm it up. And it was commonplace for the medics to use their mouths, which if you know if you even lived, you could possibly even get infected through that with you know it being in a human mouth. So it's not looking up for anyone here, and it's not looking up especially for Fox Company of the 1st Marine Division. Now, Fox Company was split off on its own hill, which would become dubbed Fox Hill, and was basically almost completely encircled within this encirclement. They were being pounded hard by PLA forces and had no way of resupply from the rest of 10th Corps and 10th Corps had no way of getting resupplied in, in general, but whatever backup supplies 10th Corps had, it could not get the Fox Company. And Fox Company was suffering major, major casualties on Fox Hill. But they held, and they held for five days, uh, eventually leading to a breakout. But, you know, after that, most men of the Fox Company died. So it's a quite sad story, and that was mainly the understanding of people in the Chosen Reservoir that, you know, it was basically going to be death or breakout. And that is where Oliver P. Smith comes in, in which he, while breaking out, said, Retreat, hell. We're not retreating. We're just advancing in a different direction. Although they were retreating. But they had to get out because there was 120,000 committed Chinese forces involved in this battle coming down on 10th Corps and there's nothing really they can do. 
especially if you know if you're other companies that's kind of like Fox Company, you're looking at something that is extremely dangerous, and really you're just gonna be, you're either gonna freeze to death, you're gonna be shot, or you're gonna starve to death if you don't get out of the Chosen Reservoir. For the first Marine Division, being surrounded in the Chosen Reservoir meant that hell had frozen over. Because they were in hell. They had sentries at night. The, the Chinese forces knew that the Americans didn't like night fighting, so they would attack at night. So the American sentries, who were out to watch to warn of an attack, found an issue. They had mu- like earmuffs that they had over their ears, so they wouldn't freeze, but they couldn't hear a damn thing with them on. So you either take the earmuffs off and lose your ears, or you leave them on and you can't hear if the Chinese are attacking or not. And that just piles onto the stress of other things. Not only do you not know, you're not going to be able to hear if there's an attack coming, your rifle might not even work. Because it was so cold, the rifles would freeze shut if any moisture got in the receiver at all. And they didn't have a good way of thawing them out because these are still wooden M1 carbines. So you can't exactly light them on fire to thaw them. And any warmth producing material you might have, you're going to be want to be using for your own body instead so you don't freeze to death. Because the boots these guys had worked decently enough when on March in freezing temperatures, but this was 20 degrees below zero, and you're sitting in a foxhole not moving for 24 hours at a time, and these men soon found that their f- the toes were freezing off. The boots were completely useless. The solution they did find, you know, Marines and their ingenuity, for the rifles freezing and their BARs freezing was... You could just pee on them. It would thaw them enough to be used in short notice. But the only issue with that is if the Chinese attack and you uh, don't have to use the restroom, uh, you're not going to be using your rifle that night. So as the Chinese attacks went on, during one such attack, three privates found themselves at a juncture between the second and third platoon. Effectively, the Chinese forces were trying to drive a wedge to split the defenders in the Chosen Reservoir in half. The three Marines, one of them stood up, began firing his M1 carbine, while the second one was just sitting in the hole trying to unfreeze his BAR. It wasn't out of cowardice, it was out of simple, his rifle wouldn't work in the temperatures they were fighting in. Now, Barber, who was telling the story, said that Hector A. Caffaretta, the man standing up firing his M1 carbine, was counting after every rifle shot, you know, one, two, three, until his rifle froze on 12. He cursed and threw his rifle at the Chinese forces and then told the other two, let's go, Benz, up there. They ran away to a shelter further up the hill and alerted the rest of the Marines that were standing up there. Caffaretta yelled, give me a rifle. Somebody give me a rifle. Mine's busted. And one of the wounded men who were in this shelter shoved one towards him and said, you shoot while I load. He began grabbing a lot of the other rifles that were up in the shelter and loading them while Moose shot. The Chinese were throwing hand grenades this whole time, and the Marines, according to historian Philip Pierce, were using entrenching tools like baseball bats to try and bat them away. 
when your rifles are frozen and the enemy's throwing hand grenades at you, I guess you do as American boys do. Now, this attack went on for hours and the Marines stood their ground until eventually the Chinese troops broke off. This had gone down to hand-to-hand -hand fighting in close quarters at the end of it, with the Marines' rifles becoming all but useless and them fighting, you know, fist to fist, entrenching tool to entrenching tool, just fighting for survival in this frozen hellscape. And although this was frozen hell, eventually 10th Corps would break out and would make it out of the Chosen Reservoir. But most UN forces that didn't die were retreating. And although they will say especially people in the United States military and military history world that's really into the United States military, that the United States doesn't have retreat in its lexicon. They do, uh, and they did. And this was the longest retreat in American history as they went all the way from the Yalu all the way down, losing all the land that they took since the landing on Inshon and the breakout over the 38th parallel. So as the UN troops keep falling back and falling back, it will eventually lead to a 38th parallel area battle where it just turns into a trench warfare stalemate in the rough mountains of Korea as the concept of a Korean War fades from the minds of the American public and Douglas MacArthur's time as a commander of U.S. forces and U.N. forces is slowly ticking down. And that's been Korean War Part 4, Cleocast Episode 15. We thank you all for your patience. Uh, it's been an interesting week, and this episode is late, and we do apologize for that. We have been working on a few things, and also, you know, we do have lives. And things take up a lot of time, and, you know, some people have to attend family reunions, and also, someone got a snake. So, this is big news for the you know internal Cleocast family, and we hope you all have enjoyed the episodes. I have been Matt. And I have been RC. Uh, go ahead and follow us on Twitter at Cleo History, or you can email us. We have a new email. It's Cleo History Podcast at gmail.com. Go ahead and send all your complaints, uh, questions, concerns, suggestions, probably mostly complaints there. Um, we'll be getting a new website at some point, as you mentioned. Uh, we'll also be getting probably better music to go at the beginning um and yeah thanks you guys for tuning in see you next time